This episode is brought to you by Philly Gemstones. I also like to use real jewellery as much as we can. I mean, perhaps my own mother's and great aunt's contempt for fake jewellery has rubbed off on me, and maybe the audience can't see the difference as much as I always think they can. Also, to be completely romantic, I think the actresses seem to wear them slightly differently when they know they're carrying three-quarters of a million pounds around their neck. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. I'm so happy today to be sitting across from Julian Fellows, the English actor, novelist, film director and screenwriter, known around the world for penning such gripping films and series as Gosford Park, Belgravia, Downton Abbey and most recently The Gilded Age. Amongst other things, Julian is going to tell us how important jewellery is to tell the story of his characters and how the decisions he makes about jewellery for the costumes helps depict the period being filmed. So I'm really, really thrilled to be joined today by Julian Fellows. Oh, I'm really thrilled to be here with you. Thank you for taking time out of your unbelievable writing schedule to be with us. It's nice to have a rest. (laughs) Julian, what strikes me about the eras in which you set some of your particular films and series that you write about is that they're all set in moments of huge change, political, social, cultural. And I guess it's a time when old ideas and old society are being swept away in favour of something new. And is that what excites you? Is it the new coming to push the old out of the way? Well, I think all periods are periods of change, to be perfectly honest. It's just that sometimes the change is rather accelerated by a war, by some social development and the whole thing speeded up so you can sort of see it before your eyes. But a short answer is yes. I think a lot of what I do is showing people who, given their own preferences, would probably have left things as they are. But in fact, they have to deal with changes that are thrust upon them. And I think that's something most of the audience can relate to because at some point in their lives, either personally or nationally, they've had to deal with developments they didn't necessarily want, but somehow they have to put them somewhere. And I mean, that is truer than ever, of course, um, of the Gilded Age, which is the one I'm doing at the moment, um, because that was an extraordinary time, I think, anyway, when America had been disturbed by the Civil War, the war between the states, whatever we call it. They'd been sort of shaken up. But of course, like all wars, it generated huge fortunes. And so when the fighting died down, there were suddenly all these families, colossally rich, 
that haven't been before. And what I think makes it interesting is that after the war, it was when America really began to kind of sense its own muscle, rather like a young girl suddenly realising she's beautiful and has power over the room, or a young man discovering he's strong or clever or whatever it is. You suddenly think, oh, I can do this. I can manage this. And that was what America came to before the war. They're rich, as we call society, whatever one says, uh, was sort of doing a kind of pastiche of a European version and living in rather tame houses in Washington Square and being quite well-bred about the whole thing. And after all, they descended not from great flashy noblemen, they descended from gentry families, usually younger sons of gentry families. So these were the railroad, the industrial millionaires. They were the railroad, yes. copper, shipping, railroad, of course, beyond everything. Uh, and they didn't want to sit in a circle in Washington Square making conversation. They wanted to build a palace on, on Fifth Avenue and build a, you know, a chateau on Madison or whatever it was. And then they fashioned their own uh, resort, their own holiday place in Newport. I mean, they found this blameless little seaside village with a rather nice beach. And suddenly they arrived. And originally they did take these little cottages, these sort of shingled cottages. But then they started to replace them. And they replaced them with little Petit Triamon and, and little Balmoral and little this and little that. And they still called them the cottages. But of course, they're all palaces, really. It's a village of palaces. And again, completely American. They have no land. They have half an acre, enough for a tennis court, but that's it. It was a social place. And the idea was to have a house where you could change your clothes five times a day and then give a ball. Uh, and, and that was what they were designed for. And really, it's a completely, that's not how the Europeans live. It's not how we live now. I mean, the thought of that as a holiday, it makes you want to lie down. But um, they, they designed it and they created this extraordinary world of kind of competitive riches in which they were all showing off and and you know there was no income tax there was no inheritance tax there was no there was nothing to hold them back how rich in comparison you could sort of equate them to the oligarchs who suddenly arrived on the scene in london yes i think they are quite like the russian oligarchs and i think to some extent the russian oligarchs are a replay of the late 19th century when the Grand Dukes arrived with limitless funds and everyone used to make fun of them in a way, but of course helped them spend their millions. Uh, and that was all the pattern. I think there is a similarity, but the Americans created a society that for me is more interesting than the one that we had because they couldn't keep the new money out. I mean, to a certain extent, the European capitals, Paris, Rome, uh, London or whatever, would keep the new people back to a slight sort of second degree. And the inner core of society continued, by and large, to be old families or people who'd married into them. Uh, and that wasn't true in America. How much did the Astor Vanderbilt real-life competitive situation in New York inspire you? Oh, well, several of the incidents in the show are taken from life. I mean, when Bertha blackmails Mrs. Astor into coming to her ball by encouraging her daughter to practice the dance and then forbid her to come because Mrs. Astor won't come. That's all true. Mm -hmm. That was what Alva Vanderbilt did. 
And Mrs. Astor came to plead with her to let Caroline, as her daughter was, to let Caroline dance and come to the ball. And, and Alva said, no, not unless you come. Uh, and that because was that. it was her goal to get her in the room to yes. say, yes, you can enter society. And when New York society turned up, as they all did, because you know, money talks then or now, uh, and they all did have some of them out of curiosity, some of them with disdain, but they still came. And uh, when they saw Mrs. Astor sitting there on the sofa, they thought, oh, I see, she's won. And, and that was that. And from then on, Alva was included in everything. And that was taken straight from life. I mean, I, my own ruling is that when I have real people in a show, then you have a responsibility to make them do and say things they really would have done or would have said. I don't think you can take a flight of fancy with real people. Uh, and so that I felt quite comfortable blackmailing Mrs. Astor into coming to Bertha's Ball because that had happened to her. But most of the characters are an amalgam of people. And so then you can do what you like. You can take uh, instant. I mean, George is not Willie Kay. Vanderbilt, who wasn't a great robber baron in that way. He was very rich, but entirely through inheritance. Uh, he was more of a fun sort. Uh, he's much closer to Jay Gould or one of those. Jay Gould, uh, for me, had this rather interesting character that he was absolutely ruthless in business to an extent that even the other robber barons thought he was ruthless and he would stop at nothing. But he was a very affectionate husband and a very good father in an era when many fathers hardly were involved with their children at all. He was leading his daughter around the, the garden with a pony. Uh, and, and that, for me, is a, a wonderfully contradictory double. So that's what we have in George Russell. I found, actually, when you talked about Mrs. Astor, queen, queen of New York society at that time, I found this um, great quote, actually, in Vogue. From Vogue had a society writer in 1941 who described Mrs. Astor's power as absolute. And he said, when the century turned, the task became too onerous for her. A thousand newcomers were at the gates, her strength waned, rituals became relaxed, other queens were in the making. Yes, it's fair enough, although there was never again a single queen. From then on, it was divided. Uh, between Mrs. Gurlitt and, and Mrs. Vanderbilt, Grace Vanderbilt and various others. Uh, and they sort of shared the burden of running the city. But uh, Mrs. Astor ran it alone. I mean, she is a bit of a mystery. I, I've searched in vain to find anything entertaining that she ever said uh, or really did. I mean, she just gave parties and decided who was in and who was out. But her, I mean, her sidekick, Ward McAllister, very camp and rather entertaining. Uh, is much funnier than she was. But nevertheless, there was, there was something in her. You know, when people are dead, it's so hard to get inside what they had. But she had something. And people were frightened of her. Nobody disobeyed her. And she made the 400 rule, didn't she? That well, McAllister were... made 400 oh, rule. McAllister decided that her ballroom held 400 people. And so, therefore, there, there could only be 400 people in real society. I mean, actually, even when he said it, there were about a 1,000 people in real society. And, of course, it 
grew and grew and grew, but the phrase the 400 remained uh, and is still occasionally still in use does. today. Still yeah. does. They still have parties, don't they? But I think, as you say, many more than 400 people yeah, sure. turn up. But I found in um, something called Era of Elegance a quote about Mrs Astor at one of her, her balls standing under a portrait of herself generally dressed in velvet, her favourite purple or green, wearing the famous stomacher of diamonds said to have belonged to Marie Antoinette. On various occasions, she'd wear white satin embroidered with pearls, a train of green velvet. And her dress was a constant problem, for she sought to always wear as many of her jewels as possible. And even in that day, the ludicrous could be achieved. Besides, the gems were often a source of physical discomfort. Mrs Astor's regal poise, so frequently noted by Breathly Society editors of the day, as often as not was caused by the great brackets of diamonds overspread on her back, which prevented her from sitting back in her chair. So that's quite a spectacle. Yes, I don't think she would have sat back in her chair anyway if she was in a bathing (laughs) costume, but Mrs Astor seems to have loved her own image and to have nurtured it. It wasn't forced on her. The portrait she famously stood before was by Carolus Duran and was at the break in the stair, I think. And and it it had her in a sort of semi-Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots outfit with a, a slightly sort of undefinable headdress. But she clearly liked a regal tone. She was quite a strange woman in a way. I mean, her husband... Uh, was continually unfaithful to her uh, and, in fact, in, uh, apparently entirely uninterested in her. And having produced a reasonable number of children, he then took off on his yacht uh, uh, with an endless supply of showgirls and, and never really played a part in her life again. She was, she was effectively on her own, keeping up this position, which must have been quite a strain, really. Yes, and very lonely. Quite lonely, I think. But then, you know, she transferred it to Newport. She she decided that Newport by 1882 had proved that it was fashionable enough to receive her. Uh, and she bought the house. But, you know, the first thing she did was build on a ballroom, you know. Uh, and in fact, I had her daughter in Gilded Edge. He'd, someone asked, so is your mother making a lot of changes? She said, well, she obviously couldn't live in a house without a ballroom. And that was obviously what she felt, you know. So I think the masses of jewels and the whole sort of standing there like a queen was was part of her power. But what you can't find is anything interesting that she actually said. That's rather sad, actually. Well, those lives are so strange, really. I mean, uh, she decided social power was what she could achieve without her husband's help. Uh, she was right. And and she did achieve it. And she did govern a great city in the period of its emergence on the world stage. So it wasn't nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she was quite a force to be reckoned with. Whether it was enough when she turned down the light and lay back on her pillow, none of us will know, really. I like the, the reference you made to Thomas Edison developing the light bulb and, and electricity, because I thought how alive those balls must have become with suddenly being lit up and the diamonds and the jewels ricocheting around the room. It must have been amazing. Extraordinary. And that whole scene, you know, when they go to Park Row and they take a picnic in the carriage and they all sit there, that was all true. Mm-hmm. And and they had this extraordinary gathering. What I like about it is that it was everyone. 
It was posh, middle class, working class, travellers, you know, people selling things from hot chestnuts up. They were all there to see the lights go on. And they built this stage outside and they came out onto it with Thomas Edison and they were lit up in blocks, you know, going around this square, everyone gasping. I mean, as I read it, I thought it was a rather marvellous marker of the beginning of the modern world, really. Uh, And so I was determined to use it. And I guess to compete with Mrs Astor, the the wannabes would get on the luxury steamers and luxury ships, head over to Paris, go to see Charles Frederick Worth to buy their latest bustled, embroidered, silk, marvellous um, fashion, and then knit next door to Cartier, who were making these fantastic sort of garlanded stomachers and tiaras, and they could come back and really compete with Mrs Astor. Yes, I mean, in the show, we always like to do something which uh, was first done in Gosford Park, where we very deliberately... I don't know if you ever saw that was a film of I wrote. Of course, we also... This is the film that you won your Oscar Which for. I won my Oscar <laughs> for. Uh, but we very deliberately made Kristen Scott Thomas and her sister in the film wear modern jewellery from 1932, you know, sort of early 30s designs, whereas Maggie Smith was wearing 1890-1880 jewels, the idea being that she had, on the whole, either inherited her pieces or built them up when she was a young bride and given wedding presents and so on. Uh, And so if you look at the film again, Mm -hmm, you'll mm -hmm. see that the jewellery comes from different periods. And we've done rather the same in this, in that Christine... Baranski and, and mm-hmm. her sister wear, you know, 1850s, 1860s jewellery, whereas Bertha wears absolutely up to the minute 1882 designs. Uh, and I think that was you know, comparatively truthful. I mean, it was a strange society. There was different weaponry they used. Uh, I mean, Alva Vanderbilt, you know, in many ways, one of the sort of key figures of the whole thing. She had been married to Willie Kay. Uh, Vanderbilt and she'd built her Gothic palace in New York on 56 or whatever, gone now, alas, and replaced by a completely anonymous building. That she'd done that, she'd built the marble house at Newport and all the rest of it. And then she got bored with Willie Kay uh, and she had fallen in love with someone called Oliver Belmont, uh, who was also very rich. I really do think, to be fair, Oliver Belmont was more of her kind of guy because both of them were rich. There wasn't going to, she wasn't going to marry anyone who wasn't rich. Uh, and, and she clearly decided, which was very brave and interesting, she thought, no, I'm, I'm going to divorce this guy and I'm going to get away with it. And up to that point, nobody got away with divorce. It was the one thing that kept you out. And it would keep you out for rather longer in Europe. Mm. Uh, but this was in the 1890s. She divorced Willie Kay. And she married Oliver Belmont, everyone terribly sort of sucking in their cheeks about the whole thing. Uh, But she then arranged a marriage between her daughter and the ninth Duke of Marlborough, who'd inherited quite young, and because of his rather feckless immediate antecedents. Blenheim was in a bad way, and although the estate had survived, and so had the house, a lot of it had been you know, the collections had been sold, the library had gone, various other things. And it needed a massive injection of money to save it. And Albert was able to offer that. And so Consuelo 
uh, was persuaded by dint of her mother faking a heart attack. I mean, it's a rather wonderful scene. She sort of, when Consuela said, no, I'm not going to do it, she sort of clasped her chest, staggered backwards and fell. Uh, and anyway, eventually Consuela was persuaded to do it. And so the Duke was summoned to Newport to stay. And Alva knew this was her moment. And she sent out invitations to all the leaders of Newport society to come to a reception to meet the Duke of Marlborough. And they were torn in one, with one voice saying, no, we must never accept an invitation from this woman, she's divorced. And the other saying, this is my chance to get to know a real English Duke. Uh, and obviously uh, the second one over the first. Uh, and from then on, being divorced was not a, a, a bar to, to everything else. And they didn't have an equivalent of going to court or the, the royal enclosure or any, all of those things divorced people were kept out of until my youth, actually. And that, that didn't go quick. But there, there wasn't an equivalent in America. So really, Alva made being divorced possible. I mean, she was a titan okay. in a way. And poor Consuelo was then in a loveless marriage. Consuelo the, was... the roof of Blenheim... Was survived. Yeah, oh no, Glenny was in great shape. And then indeed, the Duke was making those vast parterre gardens, which are still there, in the 1920s, when everyone else was pulling down the East Wing, you know, and, and selling the portraits. Uh, so it was an extraordinary injection of cash for that family, and indeed regained the Churchill, their position in society they retain to this day. I mean, they're still one of our principal leading family. So all of that, but unfortunately they were unhappy. I mean, the, the, the tragedy was that more or less every man in England was in love with her, except for her husband. And, uh, you know, nobody could understand it, but I think he was a, a very difficult man. I suspect because of his rather chaotic childhood and divorced parents, in, you know, in his youth, which was a really extraordinary thing. So listening to you, the amount of research that goes on behind the scenes to create these shows is monumental. Do you spend most of your time reading? Well, I do read a lot. And actually, I got interested in The Gilded Age just by reading. I mean, long before I thought it would be a television show, I, I was just reading. I, I read a book about Consuelo and Alva. And from that, I read about the Goulds, and I read about Carnegie and Frick and all of these other people. And I also started to notice their houses when I was in New York. Of course, most of them on Fifth Avenue have gone now. But if you walk into the cross streets or if you go further up and you get to the 70s, you can still find some of the old Gilded Age palaces. I mean, Doris Duke's father, the tobacco heir, built a wonderful house on, I forget now, something like 75th and 5th. Uh, which is now part of the New York University, uh, on which the Russell Palace is slightly based in Gilded Age. Uh, and they still exist. And I became more and more sort of involved. And then, uh, of course, I'm very fortunate in that I have uh, a team who check my work and they come back and say, oh, well, actually, you, they refer to this, but it didn't actually happen till 1884. And so you have to take it out and find another reference and this phrase with sometimes they're wrong actually I challenge them on one or two things but but usually they're right. So how do you define your day? Would you say I'll read all morning and write in the afternoon or do you have some pattern? No I don't think I do really because my writing career is always being 
driven by a sort of crowd of barking dogs who are pursuing me called a deadline. And, and, uh, and I've got to get this done by Friday, you know. So there's a sort of note of hysteria that is playing underneath the click click of my computer. Uh, and, and I have various things I've got to try and produce by certain dates and things. But I, I read generally, you know, around these things. I mean, I'm reading a book at the moment about London uh, in the 1890s as a sort of, which overlaps with lots of other things. And I think I just read around these things, really. And I know quite a lot about the period, I suppose, by this stage. Uh, and I found it very interesting. Well, it is that moment of change, isn't it, that really is fascinating. So at the moment, you've presumably done the second series of The Game. Well, I know I'm finishing the second series now, and we're doing the final drafts of the last two episodes. So we are, in that sense, nearly there, although you're never quite there, because while they're filming, these questions come in at the beginning of every week, and then, or another one, we're filming this today, and we, you know, we we can't do it in the dining room, is it okay if it's in the library, whatever it is. And then you've got the, even in post-production, you're rewriting lines for looping and adjusting scenes and this and that and the other, or, you know, with COVID, you know, can you take so-and-so out of this scene because she's just tested positive and so you're trying to pull the scene closed over her head uh, and, and, you know, there's all that. So you haven't really finished until it's all locked and going out and they're putting on the score. Uh, it's a fairly continuous process. But then I've got another project coming up and, of course, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that I hope there'll be a third series, but I hope there'll be a third series. I don't feel we've exhausted these characters yet. We all hope there'll be a third series. We haven't even seen the second yet. <laughs> we all do. But tell me, so when you're writing and rewriting, I mean, do you have an image of these people in your head? I want to know how involved you get in imagining their costume. How important is that to you when you're writing? Well, for a start, I'm a great believer in accuracy of detail, because I think even when people don't know anything about this stuff, if you get it all right in the detail, it looks like a real life on the screen. And when all the details are wrong, somehow it doesn't. It doesn't have the same patina. And that has sometimes been quite difficult because uh, uh, Americans are very forward-looking. They don't carry their history on their back like a snail as we do. The Europeans on the whole, of every type, have a sense of history and tradition and all of this stuff. That isn't necessarily true of Americans. They, some of them are interested, but some of them are not. And on the whole, as a culture, they're forward-looking. And I remember having a conversation, I said to someone, when, when exactly do you think salad came in as a separate course in America? Because it's not a separate course, as far as I'm aware, anywhere else in the world. Uh, and our salad plates are curved, so they fit on the side of the main course plate, or the course you're expected to have the salad with. But the Americans don't have those curved salad plates because they eat it as a separate course. He said, um, oh, who cares? And, and I... I said, no, I'm sorry, you're getting me wrong. I'm trying to get everything right, and I don't want a table laid in this show to look wrong so that someone can say, oh, that hadn't started until 1893 or whatever. Who cares? 
Who's going to care? And I, I, in that, it rather interested me because I suddenly felt like this sort of mad old man in the village, you know, researching the details of King Charles's head or something, speaking to an empty hall about the detail. But I don't think I am. I think there is a belief or at least an enjoyment of the detail when we get it right. And for me, costume is very important because in any era, there are many different ways of dressing and they reveal who you are. They often reveal your social class. They can reveal your politics. They certainly can reveal your self-image and which part of your generation you feel you belong to uh, is shown in your clothes. And you get this quite wide variety of what people will put on in the morning, thinking that's what I want to look like. So I think you have these conversations, in my case with Cassia, who was the designer of Gilded Age clothes. Uh, and we would talk about the personality of the character, where they felt they were positioned in society, uh, what they were trying to do, what they were trying to become. So then we evolved, or she evolved, this thing that Agnes and Ada dress well, but in a slightly 1870s way, with the bustle a little bit larger than it was generally being worn 10 years later. Whereas Bertha is absolutely cutting edge yeah. and her clothes are taken from designs of 1882 and 1883. And she would very definitely be one of those who goes to work twice and goes across twice to be fitted and measured and choose and then later to collect and have the final fittings and bring the clothes back for the beginning of the season. I mean, uh, that was a, a almost religious ritual. Uh, and with jewellery too, you see, you get this quite interesting thing in almost every era between people who value the historic and familial significance of certain jewels. This was my grandmother's tiara. This belonged to the Tsarina of Russia, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and others who were permanently having them broken up and reset because they wanted to be in last week's designs and not in something from a hundred years ago. Uh, and in that, I think you can also trace their philosophies that, that they either want to be at the forefront of the changing world, and this is a way of showing it, or often an unconscious way of showing it, or they feel the old ways were the best ways and they're trying to hold on to them. And then you have, I mean, with jewellery particularly, uh, a completely different strand of the husbands who bought their wives' jewellery to show how well they were doing. And that in many cases, the wives were fairly indifferent to being given uh, a, a necklace that had been made for the Empress Eugenie or whatever it was. Uh, but for the husband, they wanted the moment when they were announced at the door of the ballroom and they walked forward for all the women guests particularly, but most of the people there to look across at his wife and think, blimey, he must be doing well. And that was an absolute marker of that society. So they were, they were sending out signals, these jewels, in different ways, which I find very interesting. So it's a fast track in a way to get into a character. Yes, and also to make sure that the clothes, the jewels, the appearance, really, is working with what the actor is doing with the character. And that is something that, in a way, 
is easier with a series because unlike a film or a show, you write that and then it's cast and then you go to rehearsals or whatever and then they make the movie. But with a series, after a very early stage of the filming, you're writing for performances you're already watching. And so you quite deliberately, or I do anyway, I can't speak for everyone, but I am quite deliberately writing for the strengths of those actors and the ones that are funny, I try to give funny things to. And the ones who can make you cry, I try to give them scenes that make me cry. Uh, and sometimes you get, I mean, an obvious example is Maggie Smith. You get someone who can do both uh, in great proximity. And she can have you laughing like a train one minute and five minutes later, you're reaching for your handkerchief. And uh, not everyone can do that, but she can do it. And so, uh, you know, I try to write to give her the ability to do it. So in that sense, I'm writing what they used to in sort of the golden years of Hollywood called star vehicles, which were completely fashioned around the talent of a particular star. And of course, deliberately fashioned to show them at their best and to avoid showing them at their worst. And that was how the studio protected their investments. And so people who whose talent, you know, you were not anxious perhaps to queue up to see their head of gabler. But nevertheless, the, the film could be a very effective piece of work because it was absolutely tailored for them as much as the clothes or the jewels were. So in sum, you've got the importance of it building the character and you've talked about timelines, how important it is. It's, it sort of marks the time when they would have been at the zenith of their sort of fashionable life. Do they have to be real jewels to be faithful to the period? Because I think in the Gilded Age, Temple St. Clair made quite a lot, didn't it? And they were kind of modern jewels, but figured for that yes. century. Does that matter? I don't think it matters that they're made new, mm-hmm. as long as they're made new in the fashions of the 1880s. Mm-hmm. Because in the 1880s, they would have been wearing jewels that were made new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, that seems to me... Fair enough. What I worry about is solely whether they are the right statement for the character concerned. I also like to use real jewellery as much as we can. I mean, perhaps my own mother's and great aunt's contempt for fake jewellery has rubbed off on me. And maybe the audience can't see the difference as much as I always think they can. You know, and we're always being told that famous pieces of jewellery are often copies so that the real one can sit in the vault and this one can be torn from your throat by a passing jewel thief and nobody's too much worse off. I don't know how true that is, but I sort of always think you can tell when they're real. And I also, to be completely romantic, I think the actresses seem to wear them slightly differently when they know they're carrying three quarters of a million pounds around their neck. Um, They'll sit upright like Mrs Astor. Well, I think they will. (laughs) And I don't think they need comfy clothes to make them do that. You know, it's an odd sort of psychological thing because all the time, in a way, acting, particularly for the screen, is a sort of self-hypnosis of where you are taking yourself into this alternative reality uh, and you are being someone other than the person you are in a situation that differs from the situation you're in. Uh, And you have to make that 
as real as you can. I mean, some actors, very extreme, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis having to be addressed by the name of his character, even when they're on lunch breaks and that sort of thing. I don't really have a kind of opinion about all that. I feel whatever an actor has to do to make it good, let them do it. Uh, even if they need a bag of crisps, you know, I don't mind as long as what we're getting on the camera is great and everything that we can do to make that process easier. I mean, it's never easy. People don't really understand the process of acting and there's absolutely no reason why they should. But it is one of extraordinary concentration and creating this kind of fake reality that has to have all the hallmarks of real. But you used real jewellery on um, Gosford Park, didn't you? We did, yes. Yeah. We had these terrifying sort of gunmen who came with the, with the, the woman who used to bring uh, the case of jewellery every morning with these two enormous kind of bodyguards. Uh, but she was great, actually. And there was a moment in the making of the film when um, Geraldine had to go through and find the dead body of uh, her brother-in-law and scream. And uh, Geraldine said, I'm not a very good screamer. Uh, and this the woman who brought the jewels every day for two months, so he said, I can scream. <laughs> and so we, we were there and this blood curdling scream came out, which survived into the final mix. And that is her scream in the film. That's so funny. Where was she from? Harry Winston? She, she, no, was not she? Harry Winston. She was from um, a very old jeweller, which has closed now. It was just off Bond Street. And it's now closed in the last 10 or 15 years. And I can't remember the name of it, I'm sorry to say. They were wonderful to us. Uh, and they brought these marvellous things and they got into it. You know, they got into the whole thing that these characters were modern, these ones were not, uh, this one wasn't very well off and all the distinctions mm-hmm. uh, and sort of they entered into it. And Downton, you bought real tiaras in when you wrote about um, a visit from King George V and Queen Mary. And so obviously then you bought in the real tiara. We did, yes. And one rather marvellous one, was Edith's wedding tiara, when she was jilted. I don't mean that oh, yes. when she married Hexham. When she was jilted, she had a wedding tiara, which had been made in the 19, early 20s for Princess Maud of Fife to marry the Earl of Southesk. Uh, and the reason uh, I found that out was after the show had gone out, one of her great-granddaughters said, that was my great-grandmother's tiara. <laughs> And it was sold, uh, you know, by someone in the 1940s or something when they thought, well, this is gone uh, and we'll never use it again. Of course, it wasn't quite true. And they were rather sorry it had gone, I think. So Bentley and Skinner bought those, didn't they? The sort of Edwardian and Victorian tiaras. Yes, yes. And then you had replicas of the um, Queen's tiara, the Girls of Great Britain and Ireland tiara. Yes, that's right. We copied one of Queen Mary's. Mm. sort of famous ones mm. uh, that she did wear to the two big functions. So yes. I felt it was quite an honest idea to represent her in that. And I thought Geraldine James was so marvellous as Queen Mary. So you she get very, you sound very involved. So you have this initial conversation with the costume designer. You talk about that. The costume designer will go off. 
I mean, how involved do you get on set with what they're wearing? Yes, by then, I've seen all the proposed costumes and I've mm. done sort of, I mean, these days with Zoom and with so much more on the computer, these things are much easier than they used to be, um, just as it's possible to live in England and write a series that's made in America, which, of course, in the 1930s or some would have been completely impossible. So by then, uh, if you've got a good design team, uh, I think you're on pretty safe ground. Um, and, and we're lucky. I mean, we've had uh, Kazuya in the costume. We had Bob Shaw designing the extraordinary sets. And I mean, his great gift, you know, the, the Russell Palace on Fifth Avenue uh, is mainly a build on a set, but it has three or four or five real rooms. And uh, the ballroom from the Vanderbilt's house in Newport, uh, the billiard room from the same house, the bedroom uh, uh, for Gladys from the Elms, which is another of the more famous cottages, and so on and so on. And Bob takes elements of these, th these houses and draws them into rooms on the bill. So they look like continuations of the same house when you go through this door and there you are in the ballroom. But actually, they're thousands of miles apart. I love all that. That's the sort of magic of the movies. <laughs> and so you're on set throughout filming? No, I wouldn't say that. I go back and forth. Uh, I have a little machine that will show me what's going on on the set. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also have sort of permanent texting going on with what's happening on the set. Uh, and I have my computer shows me uh, the rushes, or as they say, the dailies, and I can watch them. Uh, but, but you know, there is a moment mm. where you, you've chosen these directors, you've chosen these designers, you've chosen these actors, uh, and, you know, you've got to let them get on with it, I think. I, I think it's very tiresome if they're constantly having their elbow jiggered. Uh, and, and, you know, I think you have to have faith in the people that Do have it. been hired. Doing their job. Doing their job. And so will we see lots of jewellery in the second series of The Gilded Age? Yes, I mean, I think you'll see quite a few big events. A wedding! Oh, We've oh, got a wedding! Although <laughs> I know there's one where they're deliberately asked to use flowers instead of jewels to create a sort of provincial country-like effect. But actually, it's rather pretty. So uh, I think you'll enjoy that one as well. Mm -hmm. Do you like writing about the sort of goings on in high society? Because then you can have all these glittering jewels and fabulous costumes. Well, I like, uh, I mean, it's not the only thing that interests me, you know. And I, my own favourite piece of work is probably a film I wrote and directed called Separate Lies, uh, which I still like very much and was very pleased with the way it came out with um, Tom Wilkinson and Emily Watson. Wonderful cast, actually. And the School of Rock, you know, is something, again, very different. But uh, the great thing about writing about, I don't know, society or whatever, is that by definition, because of the life they lived, it includes all sorts of different kinds of people under one roof and all getting on with it. I suppose that is its appeal to me, is that I get this variegated set of uh, ambitions, these people who want different things. I mean, I suppose my philosophy, which seems rather Pollyanna-ish, is that, in my opinion, most people are doing their best. They may not succeed, they may not get what they want, but mostly they're doing their best. 
And I think that's as true of Lord Grantham as it is of his kitchen maid, that given the cards they've been dealt, they're just trying to do their best. And I suppose that's what underpins what I do, really. I also get the feeling from your books and um, television and films that you don't like snobs. Well, of course, inevitably, because I write a lot about these sort of people, I'm supposed to be a tremendous snob. Um, Are you? No, I don't think I am, but I don't think you can survive uh, your adult life in the theatre and remain a snob because I, it's a set of values that has no meaning. It, within the theatre and film, television, whatever, you know, that world, there is snobbery, uh, tremendous snobbery, but it's on entirely different bases so that, you know, you'll have the sort of lefty lovey group condescending to people they see as popular entertainers and all that sort of thing. That goes on all the time. But whether or not their grandmother was a veer is very meaningless to them. And I don't care about all that. I find some of it interesting historically. And I find the class is a concept that interests me because I think it is very life-shaping in many ways, negatively, that it twists people out of true because they are conforming to what they think are the obligations of who they are uh, or who their parents want them to be or whatever it is. And you see people adopting beliefs, which are not really their beliefs, but they've sort of hammered them into themselves. Uh, but on the other hand, you, you can also see in any background or occupation people pretending to political beliefs they don't really have. They just think they will get them on faster. And, and it's a group that it will pay them to belong to. I'm not sure there's a big moral difference between those two. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I think watching people fashion themselves to be a version of themselves that will advance more quickly mm -hmm. uh, is always very interesting to watch, really. And so... Possibly Series 3, Gilded Age, possibly another Downton film. We don't know. You know, Sabi, I, I mean, uh, I'm very pleased with the way the Downton film has gone, you know, because it means that we've still got this kind of family out there, you know, who, who want to know more about these characters. And I mean, I started writing them about 13 years ago. I mean, it's quite a long time to be with the same family. I mean, the series has moved forward 16 years from 1912 to 1928, but the real people have moved forward 13 years. So there's only three years difference. And I mean, that in itself is rather extraordinary. And I've watched these young actors and actresses turn into leading men and leading ladies and quite big movie stars and things during that time. I love that, actually. I enjoy that. But... Um, I don't know where it'll end. I mean, I've long ago given up trying to say never, you know, about anything, really. I keep saying goodbye to these characters, and then two years later, there I am again. Scribbling furiously <laughs> their next adventure. Well, thank you so much, Julian. Thank you so much for sharing that with no, us. No, no, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jules Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwilton.com slash podcasts. 
And we're on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts and we'd love a rating or a comment. Also, we'd love to hear from you about any topic or subject or personality that you would love to hear more about on the podcast. Drop us a note, send us a message on Instagram or email. We'd love to hear what you would like to hear. And join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget when we are going to talk in depth about the life of one of my heroines, Elsa Peretti, the Italian-born jewellery designer who basically revolutionised the entire industry and the way women wore jewellery. She was the most successful woman ever to work in the jewellery field. She created carved, pure, irresistibly touchable jewellery. It was jewellery as sculpture, sculpture as jewellery, and definitely the most sensuous jewellery in the world. So please join me in two weeks when we will talk about her life and her jewellery and those times in the 70s and her relationships with some of the most iconic fashion designers of the time. So join me again in two weeks and thank you for listening. Goodbye.